Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. It may seem corny, but if you cannot visualize how a project is going to be successful, then you're only going to be able to see, you know, the places that's going to fail. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. I am so thrilled that you yet again have chosen to spend this time with me and I'm excited to bring you today's guest. Today's entrepreneur is leading the transition of one of the nation's top wind developers to become a full service renewable and storage energy provider with a very clear singular mission, which is to speed the transition to clean electricity. Mark Goodwin is the CEO of Apex Clean Energy and his persistence and precision in tactical career upgrades has put him in the captain's seat of a category leading development firm. Mark and I go deep into the process and definitions underlying building a development company. So if you've ever wondered what it looks like from the inside of what has been referred to as the leading independent clean energy company in the nation, well, stick around. You won't want to miss a second of this discussion. You'll find more than 160 other inspiring and influential leaders' stories over at mysuncast.com. While you're there, check out our Suncast tribe, or subscribe to the newsletter so you don't miss a single episode or announcement. For now, get ready for another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, today we have another fantastic opportunity to dig into the thought process, business planning, uh, brainstorming of a CEO in this industry that I bet few of you are going to recognize, and that is one of the reasons why he's on Suncast. Mark Goodwin is CEO of Apex Clean Energy, another of these amazing companies in the bustling uh, startup hub of Charlottesville, Virginia. So Mark leads the execution and corporate strategy over Apex, has been there for quite a while now. He's got 15 years in the renewable energy sector, had a great run in the wind energy sector. And if you are familiar with Apex, you're Familiar that it's predominantly been in the wind business. Well, Mark was the COO from 09 to 16, and now he's the chief executive. He's on the board of ACOR and Advanced Energy Economy and is quite involved in our industry. We got a chance to hang out a couple of weeks ago at the Tom Tom Festival. And I got to tell you, you're in for a ride because this guy is quite astute at navigating these conversations. I'm sure due in part to his ability to navigate generally. He was a helicopter pilot and naval officer. Mark, welcome to Suncast. Nico, thanks for having me. I look forward to our conversation. I guess we'll start right there at the end of the intro piece with how did someone migrate from a decade plus career as a helicopter pilot and a military officer into clean energy? Walk me through that. Yeah. So as you mentioned, I was formerly in the Navy and I was a helicopter pilot and spent uh, a number of deployments to the Persian Gulf. 
at the end of uh, my third deployment, I decided that, you know, I was probably not wanting to keep cruising and ready to start a family and get married. And I was about to get out of the Navy and I was with my soon to be wife in Palm Springs and where we got engaged. And that is the first time that I saw a utility scale wind turbine there. They were much smaller than they are today, but that was one of the early places where the industry got its start. And we were driving past like a whole array of them, and I was got very excited. And you know what occurred to me is that you know going to the Persian Gulf three times, being trained to be an officer, to be a leader, and to be a, a, a pilot was really ended up being all about energy, about protecting the sea lanes for oil. And I saw those turbines and I said, well, why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you take energy out of thin air? And we actually stopped the car and got out. I had pictures that I still have today of myself standing in front of those uh, wind turbines. And I, I had a moment where I just say I knew that what I wanted to do. And, and so I, I got out and I didn't know the first thing about wind turbines or wind energy. Can I ask you a quick question, though, before we get to that? Well, first sure. of all, I want to say acknowledge that you probably touched the heartstrings of uh, every solar developer who's ever dr driven through Southern California and driven through Palm Springs Desert and stopped and taken a photo as far back as uh, with our Blackberries and Palm Pilots. I have a ton of those grainy pictures of me in front of the Altamont Pass and I think it's a healthy addiction that we have to stop in front of every solar and wind farm and uh, and take a picture. But you said something that really intrigues me. I want to pull on this thread for a second. You said being a pilot, it was all about energy and protecting the sea lanes for oil. For those of us who have no idea what you mean, could you expound on that? Sure. I mean, the Navy has um, battle groups that are they're deployed around aircraft carriers. So a full battle group will go out with like, you know, up to nine ships and sometimes with a, a, a submarine and they'll make uh, deployments to the Persian Gulf or mm. to the Mediterranean. But a lot of the time and cost is for deployments that go to uh, defend those Middle Eastern countries from each other. Um, and to ensure that someone doesn't take control, that there's not spikes in oil. And, you know, it's it's successful, but it's very expensive. And uh, it would be great if we could wean the global economy off of petroleum. And I think the U.S. views it as important for stability that there's like free flow of, of trade coming out of the Persian Gulf, but it would be, we'd be better off if we didn't need that oil. Uh, you had to make a decision, do I redeploy? I'm going to get married. What do I do next? Am I going to take a take a bow on this stage and try to find another? Well, I was getting out regardless, but I, I honestly didn't know what I was going to do. And, you know, getting into energy seemed like uh, a great idea because uh, you could see the need. Um, as I was saying that I, I didn't know anything about the industry. So I just started calling, you know, the thing I could see with the, uh, the uh, wind turbine manufacturers and the conversations were pretty awkward. It's like, uh, yeah, I'd like to work for you. And they're like, well, what do you do? And well, I'm a helicopter pilot and well, we'll call you when we need one of those, but uh, we, we don't. So I needed to get some experience, which I did. I got, I went to, to, to work in the telecom industry, which was pretty, was booming at that point. And I eventually, after 
going to grad school and getting uh, an MBA, uh, was able to get a job with one of the Danish wind turbine manufacturers for a U.S. sales subsidiary. So I ended up working on the sale of a number of projects, and one of our lead customers was uh, a company called Zilka Renewable. And we sold them some projects in Oklahoma, in upstate New York, in Iowa. And they were one of the the leading greenfield developers in the U.S. at that time, backed by the Zilka family and led by Michael Skelly and, and Rick Windsor. During that time, Micon was eventually bought by Vestas. And I stayed with uh, with Vestas and uh, eventually got interested in the in the kind of owner developer side of the business. And I uh, joined uh, Zilka Renewable instead of, of being part of the team that sold them wind turbines. I was buying for them, so I, I just moved to the other side of the table. And at Zilka, which was bought by Goldman Sachs soon after I joined, changed the name to Horizon. Goldman invested over a billion dollars into the business and eventually sold to EDP, the uh, Portuguese um, utility. They changed our name from Horizon to EDPR and EDPR was one of the, is one of the leading wind and solar IPPs in the U.S. We were doing you know, five, 600 megawatts of wind projects a year, which we thought was like you know, the most anyone could really do. You know, at the time, you know, NextEra, one of our competitors and Ibadrola was one of our competitors, but it was, you know, exciting times, but still doing only wind. This is really a fascinating progression. I really appreciate you walking through the step-by-step because there are so many in the solar industry who have transitioned to development shops after working at a module manufacturer, an inverter manufacturer. It goes to show that, you know, there are fundamentals that you have to learn about the game <laughs> before you can be a player, right? I truly believe, and I've said this to a ton of people, that in my view, there's two places where you can learn the fundamentals of the game right now. Go work for a major utility or go work for a major, and I mean major like top five uh, equipment manufacturer. Because you get a view from the top, you get a view from the mountaintop to see who the real players are, and you build credibility if you are any good at, at sales and marketing and operations. You build credibility within that space and network such that it makes it easy for you to be recommended and slide in. Right, exactly. One of the dynamics when uh, I was with Neg Micon and with Vestas was that we were acquired. So sometimes the acquired company, you know, has a little bit of a, you know, a, a bummer because the the acquiring company is is calling the shots. It right. was still it was good, but like we had what. Like uh, some people called NEG Myconitis, which was, uh, you know, like trying to find your role in the larger company, which I had a little bit of it. And I was... I was ready to to transition to something different to to the owner side. I actually was interviewing with the different people I I considered, you know, technology startups, um, but I was really more more focused on the, the kind of the, the IPP side. And at that, mm-hmm. that was the time in 2004 when I interviewed with uh, Sandy Reisky and with his company at the time, which was called Greenlight. 
the dynamic though, when I was at MyCon and then at Vestas is that NEG MyCon was the company that was acquired by Vestas. So there was, you know, there was a little bit of that's not how we do it and trying to find a role within the, the larger company. You know, Vestas was and is a great company, but it was the time, that time when I started to think, well, would it be interesting to, you know, find uh, a new starting point? Because the MyCon really felt like a startup. It was small. It was like, felt like a family. And I was I still interested in that in uh, that kind of company. I was interested in maybe looking at technology startups or going to IPPs. And that's when I um, met Sandy Reisky. And I interviewed with him and his company, Greenlight in Charlottesville. They were pretty small at that time, but they had already made a name for themselves. And I was very impressed by Greenlight. And uh, that was one of the places where I thought would be good for me to land. But as I talked about before, you know, I had a good knowledge of the Houston Zilka team and had, had worked with them and decided to, to take that path. In parallel, both Greenlight, Zilka, Horizon were one of the companies that were building these new type of platform wind companies that had large pipelines and were, uh, were, were doing uh, uh, a ton of, of greenfield development and figuring out um, how to execute and bring the cost down. But I stayed in touch with Sandy over the years as you know the run played out from EDPR. I had been through two exits there. Yeah, I was again ready to be more entrepreneurial and Sandy had successfully sold Greenlight to BP in 2006 and he had a two-year non-compete. He called me in 2008 and said, I'm, you know, I'm getting kind of a new wind platform back together, getting mm-hmm. the band back together and maybe we could try to hook up this time. This time was the time that it, it really came together. And that was Apex. And that was Apex. And we started off uh, calling ourselves Apex Wind Energy, and we were only doing wind. And we can talk about some of the different pivots we made in the early days of, of Apex, but and started as COO in 2009. And we were a small bunch that was really, um, we had capital. Sandy had like a great name, um, was able to raise capital and it was right after the financial crisis uh, when we formed, um, which was a good time because there was a lot of mom and pops out there that had entered into the, the wind space because of like, you know, a couple of big cycles that had, had occurred previously. And it was a good time for us to do what we, we call a, like a roll-up strategy. Would you help me understand what does it mean to build a platform company? And then the second was a roll-up strategy and just like pretend we're in kindergarten again and help me understand what a roll-up strategy means and, and why that's important. A platform, what I mean is it's one of the things that I've you know really learned well at, at Zilka is there's a number of different competencies that go into, uh, into developing and financing and building and operating a wind farm. And, and, and some companies just focus on very specific parts of that. Um, like, you know, there are, there are land agents that, that go out and specifically do land. There's independent engineers that do wind site assessment. You know, companies that will do almost any very specific scope that goes into building a, a wind farm or a solar facility. 
what we did at Zilka and what you know NextEra FPL did was put a lot of those pieces together. They have their own mapping, their own resource, their own construction capabilities, their own developers, uh, their own environmental team. And so when you're developing a large pipeline of projects, you can be more effective, more professional, more efficient, because you're able to deploy these in-house capabilities across a number of projects. You can have, you know, standardization in how you do things. You can preset to to deliver financeable projects. What I hear is the idea of a platform is taking these competencies required to develop and an, a company that can build, own, and operate projects centralizing them in-house so that you can reduce the overall the overhead required to build a big pipeline. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So that I, I now am clear on the platform. And then a roll-up strategy. Help me understand what the roll-up strategy means. In 2009, we uh, decided that it, you know there was a lot of development stage assets where there were mom and pops, or mm-hmm. there was large companies who were deciding to exit the U.S. market because they needed to focus their financial resources in their home markets. So there was like lots of opportunity to find projects. I think before that time, people were were selling projects for all upfront. And I think that in some ways we made a market where we weren't interested in paying a, a lot upfront for for uh, development stage projects, but we were willing to give pretty good earnout um, mm. for the original developers to just keep their uh, keep them in the game. And in many cases, we we still like um, employed the original developers of projects and made them in some cases made made millionaires out of them in other cases we we just we bought projects from european based utilities who you know frankly had better use for, for capital they had taken positions but they did they were ready to get out like you said exactly and so um, we we were successful in in like uh, in taking those on and getting through the years of the financial crisis and, and to the other side and, successful projects. What tools do you feel like from, I mean, as far back as you uh, care to go, what tools from your previous roles really help you now as a leader, in particular, as you went into the COO role and then moved into the CEO role, I'm thinking mental models, management tools, et cetera. One of the things that was very important for us at Zilka was understanding the, the power of, of diversification, understanding that from the standpoint of a type of company that we were, we needed to have a, a competitive advantage and combining those two were, were keys in the formation of, 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 of Apex. What are we going to bring value to at utility scale renewables? What can we build on a recurring basis? We're not a balance sheet, so we don't have a low cost of capital. You know, we went through different iterations of, of business models. We started off with an acquisition of a company that was focused on trying, and this is like, you know, 2010, uh, that was focused on planting the seeds of offshore and other focus of, of trying to do brown, what we call brownfield development. And then we also had like kind of what was probably even at that time core was doing greenfield onshore wind development. What we learned was that are we adding value in brownfield development 
do these companies that own these places or these the these the, the land where these brownfields would go are they are, are they a good counterpart for uh, a wind or solar project and what we found out was they weren't that many brownfields are actually owned by large companies that whose core business is not interested in the uh, you know the royalties that come from a, a couple wind turbines or from a solar array on their land so it didn't make sense from a quick execution standpoint for us to, to have that business business model. At the same time, offshore wind in 2010, we what we used to say about ourselves in that market was that we were number one in a $0 billion industry. <laughs> um, you know, it was expensive. It took a long time. There was not a market for it. And so, you know, we, we've determined that, you know, we weren't adding value on it. On onshore wind, where we were adding value, where we had a competitive advantage was that we would, uh, we would be in places that were hard. It took a lot of professionalism. It took different aspects of our platform to be successful. We also wanted to be successful in the places that our competitors were in the so-called wind belt. But we've been working hard in, in states like Ohio and states like Indiana, New York State. And it takes more resources. It takes time. And we brought, we think, a competitive advantage to having like viable assets in these, multi, in these different types of places. I don't know if it's a pivot. You're expanding the business of Apex into solar and increasingly into solar plus storage. Help me understand how that transition came into view for you as a CEO for Apex. And I'm also curious, as you started thinking through and executing on that plan, what's been the hardest thing that maybe the thing you didn't expect that kind of caught you by surprise? Probably five years ago, we changed five or six years ago, we changed our name from Apex Wind Energy to Apex Clean Energy. And that was a nod that we we knew that we would eventually expand into solar or storage and other mm-hmm. other, other energy. Uh, but probably, you know, over t- just a little over two years ago, we started looking harder at, at utility scale solar and found that there were places where we could add value, that we, we have fairly sophisticated analytics on transmission and injection points for the grid. We have a very robust team that does public acceptance. I think a notion that we had initially that it's, it's turning out to be further and further from the truth is that it's easy that like all you need is to get a, you know, to lease some land and, or, or buy some land and then do your interconnection and you're done. And I think what the whole solar industry is finding is that you have to be better than that. You have to like, you have to come in, you have to be transparent, you have to do your homework, you have to have good sites, you have to like, you build support for, for, for communities, you have the good, good injection sites. And the harder it gets, the more interested that we are in doing it. You know, I said it a little bit in the lead up. I'm willing to bet that many of our solar warriors won't really know Apex. And I, I say shame on us for our ethnocentric view on clean energy and relative lack of knowledge of other non-solar companies that are incumbents in the space, you know, many of whom are older and bigger than most of the solar companies in our industry. You bill, as you just said, Apex as a clean energy company. Are there other clean energies that you guys are looking at? And, and where do you see Apex maybe over the next couple of years really building out your strength? Is it really focused on solar more and more? Uh, yeah, we'll be uh, adding, I, I, I'd say right now our pipeline is about 15 gigawatts and that's, um, you know, about 
12 of, of wind and three of solar. And I would, uh, I suspect that that, you know, that'll get to be a much uh, more balanced um, with more a higher percentage of solar as, as the years go by. You know, we're right right now. We are doing we're doing wind and solar. We're we're working uh, as a lot of our competitors are on integrating storage into our offerings. Um, for for a while now, there have been RFPs issued by utilities that request you to like bid wind and storage or solar and storage, and we've been participating in those. And you know, there is still uh, we're still trying to figure out what products these uh, utilities want i think they they're trying to figure out what you know capabilities they need on their system you know and we're thinking about different ways um, that we can take advantage of what we already do um, and and adding a, a storage component to it and we have some ideas and but i think a lot of folks are are asking themselves how does this contribute to my core business? How can I take advantage of this capability, but at the same time not get caught in the trap of you know providing a commodity that? Yeah, I don't remember if it was you that said it. We were hanging out together, but barrier to entry it seems like for doing utility storage project is pretty low. So you have to ask like, can I do this better than someone who else who can come in? And I'm wondering. First of all, clarify for me, uh, do, do you guys hold positions? Are you an owner operator or just pure, pure play development and then you sell the assets? Um, we, we don't have a balance sheet that we where we can own a, uh, you know, a 300 megawatt wind, wind farm or a 200 megawatt solar. So, you know, one of the challenges of, of for us is is always to raise capital. You know, our business, we are much better at deploying capital and getting a return on that, that, you know, a higher return. So our cost of capital um, is not well suited for the, the long-term returns that you get from owning a, a wind and solar plant. So we're selling sometimes before NTP, at NTP, sometimes we'll do build transfers, but it doesn't make sense for us to have our capital locked in, locked in the ownership of an asset. Um, so we would need to be a different type of company to be owning assets. Who do you feel is your ideal partner then in a, in the value stream? Like, is your team still doing a lot of greenfield, or are you still do? Are you still looking at M and A? Where where you guys sit? Yeah, great question. I think one of our strengths is M and A and is greenfield development. Uh, from a partnerships perspective, uh, we we feel like we really offer a lot of flexibility because we have that platform that does, you know, a, a turnkey scope of work. Uh, we can. Uh, pair up with uh, someone who's never been in a wind or solar asset before. We can bring it up full operations uh, with a with a construction loan, or we can take it to NTP for someone who's already very familiar with these types of assets and let them operate it. So we have a lot of flexibility. I think ideally, I would like you know to be a company that could take an asset all the way to COD by myself and then sell to very efficient capital. But to date, we've partnered with private equity, with traditional strategic IPPs, and with regulated utilities. So we're not biased and we're good at all of those models and they're all different types of structures that uh, is best suited for those types of counterparts. 
So given that you have seen uh, our business from different viewpoints, I'd love to hear if you have any particular position that you hold that is potentially controversial. On the wind side of things, we uh, have been blessed and cursed by the production tax credit. Mm-hmm. I think we're at a point which which I'm very happy with, which, you know, like some people maybe don't agree with, which is that I'm happy that the production tax credit is phasing out. Um, <laughs> Love <so> it. <laughs> the consequences of that is that, you know, wind and solar are both are terrific asset classes um, to get to where we need to go from the standpoint of like of decarbonizing the grid. You're going to need a ton of both. Mm-hmm. Um, and to think that the, the, the wind is going to is going to fade away because the production tax credit goes away is 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 i'm i'm happy that people think that because it's an opportunity for for the apexes out there what is going to happen in the short term with the ptc phasing out is that there will be markets where the prices go up and they'll go up again in the you know in the 80% year is 2021 Sixty percent years the next year, so the prices will go up in twenty one and twenty two. But to get to a place where we have the levels of penetration in renewables that we re- really need to solve the climate crisis, you're going to need a lot of wind. And the the PTC has been a crutch. It's been necessary in that you know fossil fuels do not pay a price for the the environmental consequences that they have. And so they have a very strong incumbency in the, the, the subsidies that, that solar and wind enjoy or needed to, to help get those industries going. But as, these, as the subsidies phase out, you know, a carbon tax will come in, RPSs will come in, and I think it will be a much cleaner way to finance these projects. And it will be very clear to entrepreneurs how they, how they build value in both wind and solar as the, as the, as the subsidies go a different direction. Can you clarify, or maybe you know what the difference is between how the phase out of the wind industry correlates with, or, or what it overlaps the solar industry and the ITC? What that means is like what you qual- you can qualify for a hundred percent of the PTC of of the ITC in 2019, but that that that, that can be deployed. Um, I, I don't know what year those 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 panels needed to be deployed by. So for us, 2016 was the last year that we could we could qualify a hundred percent for the qualify for the PTC 2020 is the last year that those qualified turbines can be deployed. So it's, I think it's the same in, in solar. So the 19 you can qualify via investment and then what, I'm not sure what year those have to be deployed. So it's, it's the phase out like is, is shifted. You know, one of the most common struggles I hear from you solar developers out there is the management process. For your portfolio of projects under development. And that's exactly why FTC Solar created Atlas. It's the answer to managing this complex process. Atlas simplifies the collection and storage of project level information, putting everything related to the project quickly within the stakeholder's reach. This lets your experts in real estate, utilities, power contracts, technology, and finance all communicate much more effectively. To learn more and request a free demo, please head over to go.ftcsolar.com forward slash suncast or you could just click on the FTC Solar banner at mysuncast.com 
There's obviously going to be a delta there where solar contracts become favored, I would presume, in the market. Is that the direction that we're going to see companies going as they're expanding into other areas as the, as the PTC uh, begins to phase out? That has been an impetus for a lot of folks to take a harder look and to you know, diversify the, the, the types of projects that they're working on. For us, it was part of the reason that we like expanded into solar. By no means do I believe that the uh, you know wind will will not be you know have uh, you know a significant annual you know additions that that will, will come even as the, as it phases out. States are adding their RPSs or or, or like uh, you know their standards that they're shooting for. California passed a hundred percent clean energy by 2045. And there's more than half the population in the U.S. is talking about 100% clean energy standards. And it is, in my mind, it's impossible to do that without a combination of wind, solar, and distributed, and a lot more transmission. You have a clear view on some of the bellwethers that mark, that were kind of demarcation points and pivot points in the solar, in the wind industry. What would you point to for us in the solar industry as uh, potential bellwethers that we might want to be watching out for or thinking about uh, that would affect the solar industry? Well, one of the things that um, you know has been recent, uh, to my knowledge, on the solar side of things, and what we've been doing in wind for, for a while, is that we're, we've been financing wind projects based on, on commodity hedges. And now, now solar is doing that, and Apex is working in specific markets on using a commodity hedge as the revenue to finance the solar projects. And you know, I think there's there's other types of innovations that will follow. You know, one of the projects that we're proud of that we did in 2015 was called Kingfisher Wind, and it had a 20-year uh, hedge with Morgan Stanley, which was in SPP, which was the kind of the first 20 year hedge done in like, which was like a new, uh, a new market for hedges. What does that mean in SPP? In the Southwest power pool. Um, okay. So that's like states that like Oklahoma and Kansas and uh, Nebraska. The thing that was innovative about it was that we had a commodity hedge um, at the project level in SPP and Morgan Stanley had a back-to-back with Southern Company with a Gulf Power, which is a division of, of, of Southern Company. They were going to supply that back-to-back to Gulf Power from some transmission rights that they had to the Kingfisher project, as well as assets that they had in in and near Gulf Power. It was a multi-party you know, power agreement that included Apex, Kingfisher Wind, Morgan Stanley and Gulf Power. Could you help bring down to sort of ground the term commodity hedging, what that means and how that benefits clean energy projects compared with other types of financing? And then you mentioned back to back, maybe you ex- extrapolate on what, how a back to back contract works as well. So the commodity hedges are, you know, they're, they're similar to the, you know, the traditional form of power agreement. The earliest projects in wind were typically financed with a uh, utility power purchase agreement, PPA. And those were contracted 
right at the point of uh, at the at the so-called bus bar where the the project interconnected into the grid and the utility would be responsible for taking that power and delivering it to their mm-hmm. load so they because they were <clears throat> typically load serving and the utility that was that had the the region where the wind project was it was the simplest contract and it was also the most financeable form of contract as you know the more and more wind projects were brought online it became possible for wind projects to take advantage of so-called commodity hedges which fossil industry had been using for a long time which is essentially it's not delivered at the bus bar so it, the, the the power is contracted at a hub so it adds more risk um, to a project and it also has more so-called merchant involved in the the revenue streams. It's essentially a contract for differences. Uh, The hedge provider gives a fixed price and the owner of the project takes the risk between what the price is, where he's delivering it, and what the price is where, where the project, where the contract is settled. I'm curious, given what you, like the number, just the sheer number of transactions you've seen uh, and where you see the trend, do you feel like the contract tenor is going to become shorter and shorter as the pricing gets lower and we start to see these hedges? The wind hedges that most most have been have financed have been 12. There are 15-year ones out there. I think it just, uh, you know, I think the owners, the sponsor equity out there is pushing back on the hedge providers trying to make them shorter and shorter it's like frankly it just doesn't it doesn't become financeable so i think 12 is like is is like kind of the lower end right now and and they're they're not getting traction for contracts at least on wind and solar that are that are shorter than that what's the average design life for a wind project 20 25 sometimes 30 yeah this is the thing i don't understand about solar still and I see companies like Cypress, probably Apex as well, pushing the envelope on this. It's like, there doesn't seem to be a credible reason why we couldn't be and shouldn't be financing a 30-year asset for solar. I would argue, depending on the way that the project is built, it could be 35 or 40. And we're competing against assets that are being financed with a 50-year or 70-year design life. What's your belief in terms of asset life and design life as it pertains to asset value and ability to finance the deal? You know, as we talked about earlier, we're we're typically not owning um, the assets long term, um, so we'll we'll have a model um, that you know an investor will look at, an owner will look at, and we try to be at the market. And market right now for solar, do you think is still twenty five years? Most that we're working, I think, are thirty. I think we'll go go for thirty. The investor will believe it or he won't believe it, and we'll <laughs> and we'll. Uh, and we'll see what they'll make their own determination as is uh, in valuation on uh, what they I love it. assess. Yeah, Mark, you've been mentored by and have thusly mentored a number of uh, of folks in our industry, and I'm always curious to understand if you have any of those key nuggets or lessons takeaways from your mentors that have meant a lot to you in your career and that you now pass along to your team. One of the key lessons I think is you know in this business in particular is when you're working at a project level, there are any number of things that can go wrong. You know, what makes for a good project and what makes for a failure in a project? I think the key is fundamentals. And if, if a project has the fundamentals, then you have to be able to position your, yourself to what's the path to success on that. 
And when I'm working with a team, it's important to know how what, what are the challenges of the project. But at a certain point, the team starts to talk about all the problems. They're talking about how a project is going to fail, and it will fail. And what I've learned in the development side of the business is uh, that needs to be more than balanced by a team that tells you what success looks like. It may seem corny, but if you cannot visualize how a project is going to be successful, then you're only going to be able to see, you know, the places that's going to fail. Was there a specific moment in time where you look back and maybe it's at Apex, maybe it's just in your career broadly, where you say that moment I can talk about with my kids this moment in my career or in the history of our company where I knew the things were going to work and it was because we did this thing. I I think a key moment for us was like a combination of being ready and being lucky. And that's probably the case for a lot of people. Our first project was a 300 megawatt project in Oklahoma. It was the, at the time, the largest single phase project in Oklahoma. And that was successful. You know, it was it was a Hail Mary in some respects. Um, we have a, a PPA from AEP. They had a, a settlement that they had just made related to coal plants in, in, uh, uh, in their territory. And they needed a, a PPA quickly. We had a project that was was like uh, was ready. We had been passed over for PPAs by uh, a lot of power purchasers, and we finished that project. Was financing closed on March 31st of 2012. That had tax investors and construction lenders that signed up for a project that needed to be completed by the end of that year. You know, from like uh, you know paper, it needed to be completed like a month and a half before the end of the year, just because so it, it would have a cushion to be financeable. And we built that project. And, and, and today, we don't even talk about trying to get something financed on that timeline. But there was a number of things that came together from a preparation standpoint and from a luck standpoint that enable us to do a project that quickly. We've talked a little bit about innovation, you know, privately. And I know that you have a couple of particular um, perspectives on it. I'll ask through the lens of what corners are you looking around? Where do you see our industry, clean energy broadly going? And what do you think is next for us? We talked about it before, but a company like Apex and our, our peers that do both wind and, and solar are very good at decarbonizing the grid. And I think that's like what we're, that's core for us. That's what we're good at. That's what we're, we're going to continue to be doing. But look, when I see, when I see challenges in us doing our, our job, it's, it's an opportunity. For instance, we're very low cost of energy in a state like Nebraska. Nebraska doesn't have a lot of load. We can produce electricity with the PTC for $12 per megawatt hour. I mean, it is so low. Can someone please figure out something to do with power that cheap in, in the state of Nebraska? So I sometimes you know, get caught, should we be trying to innovate on upstream from ourselves and, and like you know, use, you know, creating our own load and like some of these ideas around the hydrogen economy or around, you know, power to fuel or power to gas. I think you and I talked about this a, a little 
before, but fundamentally, I think, you know, someone is going to be doing that, but there's probably better ways for, for us, and that is focusing on transmission, focusing on policy, focusing on the technology, uh, you know, how do you, how do you partner with someone so that you're delivering at the time when the energy is, is needed. And I think that's also an opportunity for, for, for folks out there is like, how can you manage demand uh, so that it is making the, you know, intermittent resources that we have more effective? Well, let's move into a segment I call learning leadership and legacy. I believe that readers are leaders and leaders that subsequently are readers. Mark, what book have you recommended or gifted the most and why? One of the books I recommend is Drawdown, uh, edited by Paul Hawken. It's almost like a guidebook for entrepreneurs where you can just go into it, open it anywhere in the book and, and say, wow, I didn't know that there were so many emissions because of this problem or that problem. Then the other book I recommend is uh, Designing Climate Solutions, fairly new by uh, Hal Harvey. What habit or consistent practice has had the greatest impact on your life and work? Yeah, I think that my leadership style is kind of, is the walking around leadership, and I think we thrive on being uh, on on fast communication, fast reaction, understanding, you know what what's happening. So I am you know very frequently out of my office and other parts of the business and understanding, you know, what's happening today, what are people worried about? And I think that's been, that's been helpful for us so that that's to like help us to react quickly and for us to be a, a company where people know that, you know, everyone knows what they're doing. Every part of our business can say that they are at the center of what we do. Uh, and an example is if you're a developer, you think that everyone works for you to develop a, a project. If you are a financial analyst, you have inputs that come from every part of the business. And you're saying, you know, if I don't get this right, this, you know, the, the, the business model is not going to work. If you are a lawyer, like the contracts that you're working on rely on all these other parts of the company to come together. And everyone is right from that perspective and and I view if we're if I'm doing my job all those pieces are really talking together and working together well and so that's I think that's that, that's key. Well Mark uh, before we enter to the final question where can people find you do you have a presence online that is makes you accessible? Uh, yeah yeah I'm active on Twitter and mm. and LinkedIn. What's your handle? At Mark W Goodwin is a Twitter. We'll link to both of those and Make sure that folks can find you. If you just search Mark Goodwin and Apex, you'll find him on LinkedIn. The website is apexcleanenergy.com. Mark, as we wrap up, is there anything that the Suncast audience can do to help? Is there anything that occurs to you? You've got, a, you've got an audience in front of you here. Do you have an ask? One of the big challenges these days is the advent of social media. You know, it's had a lot of good things to it. You know, developing wind and solar projects at a community level has been made in some ways more challenging because, 
you know, Facebook or Twitter is, is sometimes it channels negative energy. It, it, it's good for, for fear mongering. It's good for misinformation. And if it's used that way, it's hard to overcome it. It's hard to like unring a bell on, on like some misinformation. And we spend a lot of effort doing that. What I would suggest to your listeners is that one thing that trumps that is, is like um, participation by citizens who support the transition to clean energy. So, you know, if to the extent that there is a wind or solar project in your community is make your voice heard, tell your county that you support this, that, that uh, commissioners who support wind and solar will have your vote. That can make the biggest difference out there. Be an activist. Mark is uh, on Twitter. I'm looking at his Twitter account now, Mark W. Goodwin. How about it, Solar Warrior? He's got 481 followers. Do you think we can get out to 1,000 here uh, in, the next, uh, in the next couple of weeks? While, uh, while they're out working on that, Mark, I'd like to invite you to end today with your bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? Well, I have been saying, like incorrectly for a long time that uh, a carbon tax is coming. You know, I'm optimistic. I, I think that that is a great starting point for the, for the next step in policy. You can't do it all at one time. I had a great conversation with Carlos Curbelo at the TomTom Festival. And, you know, I thought it was a terrific conversation. And he talked about why he set up his proposed carbon tax the way that he did. And I was, I was a little dubious when I read his, about his carbon tax that it like was that it broke the tax pledge that the Koch brothers had because it was not revenue neutral. It was, it was using the revenue towards infrastructure. It did not raise the price of gas because it took back the gas taxes and implemented the carbon tax. And I was like, well, how are you going to have an impact on the transport sector if you don't raise the price of gasoline? We had some good answers there. But at the end of the day, if like a, a carbon tax, it is like an answer that conservatives have said is a place that they could go. And it would be great for innovation, it impacts all different sectors of the economy. If it's structured correctly, it could be popular. We've been hanging out with Mark Goodwin, CEO of Apex Clean Energy. What are your thoughts, Solar Warriors? Is a carbon tax finally coming? Let us know your thoughts on that and all the other fun topics that Mark and I discussed here on Suncast. Find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll link to all those in the show notes. Mark, thank you so much for being on Suncast. Thank you, Nico. I really enjoyed it. All right, Solar Warrior, that's it for today's conversation with Mark. But it does not have to end here. If you learned something from this episode, then I'd love to hear all about it. Would you mind posting your thoughts on LinkedIn and tagging Mark Goodwin and myself? I'm eager to hear how this episode has impacted you. As always, you can find my LinkedIn and Twitter handles and other resources and highlights from this discussion on the blog at mysuncast.com. When you click on the Listen button, you'll go to the Episodes page where you'll see the show notes for this episode as well as all of the other back catalog. The social media and website links are there, the books and other goodies covered in each and every episode. While you're there, I do hope that you'll check out the Suncast Tribe where you can be a part of my inner circle of solar warriors and trusted advisors. You can be invited to our private Slack channel, join our book club, so many other goodies and ways to interact with the Suncast Tribe. Click on the member button to learn more and gain access to these uncut interviews and conversations with our Tribe exclusive. 
Of course, do subscribe to the newsletter because you'll be notified when the new episodes are out or where I'll be next in the world. Hey, speaking of next, don't miss out on next week's episode with Julia Hamm, Executive Director of SEPA, so you can learn the real story of how SPI got started. And remember, you are what you listen to, and I do truly value your investment here today. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.